Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Health Connect South Radio. Joined in studio, as almost always, by my co-host, Diana Keogh of Sherwick Media Group. Great to be here. (laughs) Who's the engineer in the studio today? Good gosh. I know. Well, I'm excited to uh, have you here today. We didn't think you were going to be in the studio with us today, and your travel plans got changed, and here we are. They did. Another day in Atlanta is always a good day for me. And so today our focus is going to be looking at pediatric-facing innovation in the healthcare space. And we have some experts that uh, clearly do a great deal of work in that direction. And uh, another one's on their way to join us, caught in some uh, wonderful Atlanta traffic this morning. So uh, she'll be joining us here shortly. But at the moment, we've got Leanne West. She's the chief engineer of pediatric technologies at the Georgia Tech Research Institute. And she's kind of a big deal. She's been doing a lot of work in the uh, pediatric technology space and was actually uh, awarded for her efforts with the Woman of the Year in uh, Georgia Women in Technology last November. So congratulations on that. And thanks for taking some time today, Leanne. Sorry to pop that out on you, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she brought along with her uh, Paul Spearman. He's the vice chair for research, chief research officer, and a professor at the Emory University School of Medicine and Pediatrics. So thanks for taking some time, Paul. Thanks. Glad to be here. So take us through your background a little bit, and then we'll kind of get into some of the things that you're doing here with uh, Georgia Tech, Leanne. My background is a little bit varied. Um, I didn't go straight into medical applications or medical devices. I started out in optical engineering, and somehow that took me through the path of mobile health devices and sensor technologies and integration of systems. And now I work on medical devices and help Georgia Tech engineers meet up with children's clinicians and try to help solve the problems over there. So how do you identify the projects that you're going to work on? Because from what I understand, uh, the university, like we talked about with Children's Healthcare, and we'll look at some of what they're doing as well with regards to startups and getting companies going and, and certain projects. And, and, and one of the things I, from what I understand that you like to focus on are what called quick wins, things that can be brought out and, and made available to the community relatively quickly, as short as 18 months, which from the perspective of device development and innovation, it's, that's pretty fast. It's definitely really fast. We do have a program called Quick Wins, like you said, and the idea is that if there's a problem that a clinician brings to us and we have a solution that we think we can do in 18 months or less, that's something we would fund with a quick win. So we have several of those going on right now with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Can you talk about what's, what's that process like as far as how does somebody get their particular uh, initiative involved? Essentially, um, somebody from Children's where they reach out to me looking for a team um, to help them solve a problem or I might identify something when I talk to people about what's going on in, in their job and what frustrates them every day. We have a really simple process. It's a really short application. You have to have a children's clinician on board. They have to be the lead because we really want to solve something that's pertinent to what they do every day. And then either I match them with somebody at Georgia Tech or they have already found a partner at Georgia Tech to move forward with. And we review the applications every month. So it's a rolling basis. There's there's no direct amount of money that you can apply for. It's really we want to see what you think it's going to cost to do it. And again, if it's something we think is reasonable in that time frame, that's something we would fund with quick wins. So is there kind of a, a, a range of dollars that we're talking about, like a minimum to maximum range that you guys actually are working with? Right now, the minimum that we funded is $50,000, and the highest we funded is around $200,000. Sometimes we look for cost share um, from different sources to maybe balance out some of what we pay out of quick wins. And so where's where are these funds actually coming from? The funds come from the relationship that Georgia Tech and Children's established a couple of years ago, each institution put in $10 million towards the relationship. Can you give some examples of the just some of the technologies that, that you're working with, that maybe some that have already been brought out and, and been able to be made available? We have several projects going on in Quick Wins. Some are process improvement oriented. Some are, are data analytic oriented. Um, we have built a laparoscopic surgical tool. And that was one that, you know, you're pushing the timeline on the 18 months. 
We have built several apps to help different groups streamline their processes or make services more available to kids who need it. And I, if you do, you want to talk about a specific project or anything? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it might be interesting to hear about the Grasper, you know, in, in a little the more Grasper. detail because that it's sort of the um, the official the flagship um, <laughs> kind of device that's come out of this, right? So Paul is on the Quick Wins team, by the way. So he helps review the proposals that come in to make sure that it's something that makes sense from a medical perspective. But he mentions the Grasper, and Paul gets to say the name of the condition, pyloric stenosis. Right. So this, this is a condition where in an infant, um, the, the end outlet of the stomach gets plugged up by the muscle getting too large, and it, it requires surgery. And, and it's a slippery little thing when you're in there as a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon, but they, they tell me. So they it's say. Very slippery. <laughs> and, and so the, the kind of tools that are, uh, that are available for doing this operation are maybe not ideal for holding this, uh, this part of the stomach. And so one of the uh, surgeons at Children's, uh, George Rashbaum, actually came up with this idea of, well, if you guys could build me something that would really help hold the pylorus, then, you know, or the, everything around it, then we could do the surgery much faster and be a lot easier on the kids. Right. He said it takes about 30 minutes to do the procedure, but if he had a better tool, it might only take 10 minutes, about oh, 20 minutes wow. of meant trying to grab onto the pylorus. That so, much less time under anesthesia <laughs> and so forth. That's right. So you're looking at improved outcomes all around. In addition, the, the tool that they were using was really likely to tear the intestines. Uh -huh. And if that happens, then you have to not be laparoscopic anymore and you have to go for open surgery. And so this is basically, the, as opposed to somebody actually holding it, um, but it's all being done minimally evasive in what, anyway, right? That's right. Okay. I can only imagine how difficult it is to do laparoscopic surgery a on baby. a child. Yeah, I mean, I know that they're able to create space with air or gas being injected into the space, but still, on some of these children, I'm sure, that are very, very young, it's a very difficult kind of tight quarters that we're dealing with. So some kind of technology that would help that process, I'm sure, is going to be quite useful. That's right. I mean, because these babies are just a few weeks old when they come mm -hmm. in with this condition, and then they don't have food, and they're dehydrated because they can't keep anything down, so they're that much smaller. And that's one of the reasons why the work that you all are doing is so important is because they're so different in, a, in some ways. Uh, babies and, and young children are, are so much different in some, some ways they respond to certain medications and treatments and things like that. And obviously when we're doing things like surgeries, uh, clearly the implications are, are amplified in that small body. So uh, I'm sure it must be re quite rewarding when you're able to bring something like that out. They say, hey, I need this, and, and you're able to actually help implement that. It's got to be great. Yeah, absolutely. I could add a little bit to that. I think what one of the things that we enjoy about the relationship between the institutions, between Emory, Georgia Tech, and Children's, is that we can take a problem that maybe no one has really looked at for, you know, 50 years, because we're just kind of static uh, with how we handle different pediatric problems. And they can look at it completely differently, you know, a different way. How can we really solve this? And it, it's really true with this kind of uh, this kind of idea came out of just a meeting between, you know, the clinicians and engineers to kind of to come up with how could we solve a problem. And that, that goes beyond the devices. That will go to new drugs and new vaccines in many different areas. Can you talk about the relationship and, and how it kind of came to be between Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Georgia Tech with regards to trying to kind of partner up and, and make projects like this advance a little more quickly? Sure, I can, I can start out on that. I think the relationship probably goes way back, um, you know, many years. I, I can talk best about since I've been in Atlanta. I've been in Atlanta about 10 years, and there already was a, a strong relationship between Georgia Tech and Emory and Children's and Morehouse School of Medicine. And so part of that relates to the kinds of research we can do together. But uh, it was about 2007 that we undertook a, a new strategic plan to bring more emphasis on pediatric research between all the institutions. And so there was a strategic plan that was formulated back then to really push the issue and get engineers together with clinicians and to get more pediatric research going among the clinicians and, and bring in more PhDs working on pediatric problems. So a whole strategic plan was formed then. And there was an investment, and so there was a, a joint investment between Emory and Children's at the time to really expand pediatric research in Atlanta. And then the Georgia Tech relationship 
really came to play in that and, and formed some new grants and some new collaborations. And then there was a, a, an announced partnership that Leanne's already mentioned uh, with the $10 million on each side to really foster that particular relationship between Children's and Georgia Tech. And now we're talking about even bigger things. So I think it's, um, you know, it's something that has continued to gel, and we have lots of ways to show the productivity of, that relation, of those relationships. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's interesting that the surgeons at the hospital, for example, or the clinicians that are there are able to kind of leverage the, the existence of this type of relationship so they can come to you and say, hey, can you try to develop this? Can you try to come up with something that will help us make this process run sm- more smoothly. I think it's it's got to be pretty unique to have that right there. And, and and I think it's interesting because you have two major research institutions that are technically, in a way, competing, and, um, you know, but uh, here we are cooperating. And I think that that in and of itself is, is, is pretty interesting as well, uh, you know, clearly to the benefit of the community. You know, prior to uh, organization or even a cooperation, collaboration like this, what what did surgeons, what did clinicians do if they had an issue like this? What, I mean, what happened? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think there are a few physician inventors out there who really would take on a problem themselves. But what this really does is allow, you know, clinicians who are usually quite busy, if they're surgeons, they're in the OR, uh, to bring an idea to someone who can really act on it in a more, you know, timely manner and really maybe knows the engineering in a way that a physician may not unless they go out of their way to find it out. So so it really can kind of propel things forward more quickly. That's the way I'd look at it. Yeah, I agree. So are you bringing, so if a clinician comes to you like this grasper, are you actually then taking it to the, you know, what level of engineers within Georgia Tech or who are you actually bringing it to within the organization? I bring it to faculty members at the organization. Um, Georgia Tech actually has two pieces. We have an academic side and an applied research side, but both parties will participate in projects depending on what it is. So I really just try to find the person who has the expertise in that area to take it forward. And is there at Georgia Tech kind of a healthcare umbrella that people are working within or how does that work? Sort of. So Georgia Tech has something called Interdisciplinary Research Institutes and there are two that really focus on healthcare. One is the Institute for People and Technology. So you can think of devices kind of outside the body that you would interact with, apps, sensors, wearables. And then there's the Institute for Bioengineering and Bioscience, and that's more things like stem cell engineering, regenerative medicine, those types of things that you think of more biology and chemistry type applications. Now, it's not actually typical that organizations this large that, you know, there's not that big of a piece of a pie that we're talking about would actually cooperate on this level. Um, have there been any conflict, or how, how are you all not fighting over the profits that are, are at stake here? <laughs> Yeah, I, let me just comment on that. I think there are there are lots of reasons to work together that benefit everyone. One is, you know, even before you may have a product, you may have a collaborator who expands your science, and you can get a lot further to uh, your particular research question. You can get research grants together. You bring in new people together who enhance the community, and then eventually you may have a product that really start, you know, yields a startup company and a real uh, you know, real business venture. So there are many, many intermediate benefits that we really enjoy together. And plus, I think the institutions are very different. So, you know, the, the hospital is the largest pediatric healthcare provider in the country, but not a scientific, um, you know, not historically hasn't had a big uh, research program except in partnership. And so it benefits the hospital to be in partnership with Emory and with Georgia Tech. And, and I think Georgia Tech and Emory also have different interests, you know, and different expertise. And so it's great to kind of get everybody together. Does the Georgia Research Alliance come into play here, or do they focus more on the, medical, on the medicine side of things? Because, I mean, clearly they're into incubating and bringing about um, commercialization of good ideas that are coming out of their students and graduate students. So does that come into play here at all, or being a part of Emory or no? It does, actually. Yeah. So the, the GRA has helped us with recruiting and helps us uh, continually with um, where we're going, especially in those things that can be commercialized. So, uh, But beyond that. So, for instance, uh, there's a GRA eminent scholar. The GRA has a, a program for bringing in outstanding scientists that have ideas that can also 
hopefully be commercialized. And this, the one that we brought in some years ago between Children's and Emory primarily, but also with a lot of involvement from Georgia Tech is Ami Klin, who heads up the Marcus Autism Center and has developed devices for the very early, devices and techniques for the very early detection of autism. And so this is something that has made a major difference and has the potential to really have a major difference in Georgia and throughout the country. So, so that's an example of how the GRA can really benefit uh, our efforts. They provided you know, a lot of uh, resources to help bring AMI here. They also kind of showed that there are, there's, there's an emphasis in Georgia in doing this kind of innovative science to build new things. And so, so they always play a role as we go forward. Well, in addition to they, they fund or sponsor projects um, of technologies that could potentially go forward and become a company, become a real product. And so when that actually happens, is it pretty much papered up as far as who's going to be getting the split of what? Or, I mean, or is that all worked out before even the discussions happen? We have IP agreements between the institutions. So for that aspect of things, I think we've got it pretty well worked out. It's not that there aren't discussions all the time about that. There are, you know, there are, but they're not the, they're not game stoppers at all. Which is nice to hear because, you know, greed is what really kind of brings down a lot of things. So, you know, we can all be happy and collaborative until there actually is real money involved. And then that usually kind of wipes out the cooperation. So it's nice to hear that you all are kind of thinking ahead. You know, and is there actually a a part um, of the whole organization that, like the Grasper, I'm sure that there's other applications in even adult or other surgeries. Is there a part of what you're doing that actually looks for those opportunities as well? We do. We take that into account when we look at the technology. Um, One of the things that we consider is, can this go forward in a larger market? And we, we look for those opportunities, definitely. You, we've been talking with the experts from Georgia Tech and Emory. Leanne West, uh, the chief engineer of pediatric Te- technologies for the Georgia Tech Research Institute, and Paul Spearman, vice chair for research and chief research officer at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And we've been talking about the way that these two research organizations have been collaborating to move ahead with uh, important pediatric research. And Paul, can you talk about this? What, what makes the pediatric research side of things so challenging as as it, as it relates to, you know, addressing issues that face that population? Well, I, I think it's been a relatively underserved area historically. The, the overall amount of, of national funding that goes toward pediatric problems we think should be higher. Um, so there are problems, uh, if you think of things like uh, sickle cell disease, that where the treatments for such a disease have not really changed in many, many years. And so it's an area that needs more research and th- that there are you know, kids suffering. And so it's, it's something that um, <clears throat> we see there's a big need to enhance the research. And it, it, as you're seeing the kids, if you're a physician seeing the kids in the hospital, you really uh, get inspiration from that. If you're um, an engineer, maybe you hear about the kids, and sometimes we get to bring them in the hospital, but not that often. Right. Mm-hmm. Then it, it provides that extra um, kind of emphasis behind what you're trying to do to, to develop new discoveries or new technologies. And, and I think one of the kind of interfaces we've had that's worked well is when we do actually bring let's say, maybe not even the engineers themselves, but the leadership from different institutions that can develop um, devices and, and technologies. We brought um, the provost from Georgia Tech and, the, and, the, uh, and other leaders through our pediatric ICU a few years ago, and they were just amazed at the, um, the kind of size of the devices rel- relative to the kids. You know, it just this is uh, radio, but I think... Um, you know, of good visual is imagine a tiny little baby and there are 10 machines surrounding them with large tubes going toward the baby. And, you know, you can barely walk through there because of the machines. And to find the baby is not even easy. Of course it is for us, but I'm just right. saying, right, right. you know, visually you look yeah. at this. And, and so the, the equipment and the technologies we have are sometimes derived from adult medicine mm-hmm. and could be much better engineered to handle a small child, the volumes, the tubing, everything can really be improved. Uh, the times I've been into the, the NICU, the neonatal ICU, it's pretty amazing, the, the devices that they use and the special equipment that they have for those tiny, tiny little individuals. Can you talk about some of the, the, the research that, that you're particularly 
proud of that's going on right now that might be beginning to have some impacts? Sure. We have uh, <clears throat> we we chose to look at high impact pediatric areas and we formed some research centers around these high impact areas. So <clears throat> I'm sure you've you know you've probably heard of the Aflac Cancer Center is one one uh, area that's childhood cancer oriented that's been around for a long time and has been growing and really is looking for you know, new treatments for leukemias, better uh, handling of sickle cell disease, many different areas that they're uh, engaged in. And so that's, that's one example of a kind of a research focus to help kids with cancer, kids with hematologic disorders. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you an example from um, the cardiac arena. We recently recruited someone whose work is not, it's not yet, you know, sort of out in the clinic, but it, it will get there. This is an individual who had been working very hard to develop a way to restore pacemaker cells in the myocardium. If you, if you have a child who ends up with an a, uh, electrical pacemaker, it's quite a problem because kids are small and they grow. Right. And so you've got to replace these to devices. It, yeah. mm -hmm. I mean, so you've got to always be pulling wires and putting new ones in, and it, yeah. it's quite a problem. So he's actually working on a technology to introduce into the cardiac cells, and doing this right now in animals, um, to make them pacemakers and then have them be in the right place to be a functional pacemaker so the heart can continue to beat well and maybe not need an artificial pacemaker. Now, is that using stem cell technology, or, or how are they doing that? that? It's a form of genetic engineering, but it's not using stem cells, that particular uh, application, although we do have some individuals who are also going after cardiac stem cell work. And this could, the two could interface for sure. Talk about the Center for Pediatric Nanotechnology a little bit. Sure. So Center for Pediatric Nanotechnology is one of our attempts to really stay on the cutting edge of what's going on in science and bring it to pediatrics and bring it to pediatric problems. So um, one of the focus areas in, in the CPN is uh, genome <clears throat> engineering techniques. So these are very, it's a very fast-moving technology where you can uh, actually intervene in a defective gene and replace it. And, and it's, it's related to older forms of gene therapy, but it's, it's really more cutting edge, more efficient, more promising, and, and it really has a lot of promise for the future. So an example would be yeah. sickle cell disease that I've already mentioned, where there is a single gene problem. It's, it's just a tiny problem that's been, you know, it's in, it's in the genome, it's in the chromosomes. If you could correct that, for instance, in a stem cell, in this case, uh, early on in life, and, and then produce healthy uh, red blood cells, then you could alleviate this, the problems with this disorder. So that's just one example of, of what CPN is going after. Another would be maybe more practical, um, nanoparticle delivery delivery of medicines or of vaccines in, on a very, very small scale where um, the particles can be taken into cells where they wouldn't otherwise get, and you can target them specifically. So it's, it's a technology that is also moving fast and will certainly get to the clinic soon. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we try to ask everybody, and I've, uh, as we caught up a, a few days ago, I talked about this, and surprisingly it, it ends up stumping folks sometimes, but one of the things that we want to try to do for the guests that we have here on the show, uh, clearly our mission is to help people understand what are you doing, what do you need, what, what will make your, your, your respective projects move forward more quickly, because clearly here in this case, we're talking about uh, innovations that could hasten or improve outcomes uh, in pediatric patients. So I'll throw it to you. What, what do you need? Um, clearly funding is always going to be, when we're talking research, uh, is going to be one of those things that's it's given, I, I, I would assume. Where do those funds come from now? Where, where might you, know, you be hoping that somebody hears about this and, and uh, maybe contributes you know, funds? But are there other things, whether it's data processing, whatever, whatever you sit around the boardroom wishing you had uh, that we can get out there so that someone might say, hey, I know somebody that has that. I'll start, and then maybe Leanne can, <laughs> can pitch in, too. So we, we've actually had very generous support from the community and from the institutions to really make this enterprise go well and it's in, in the last five or six years. It's been, it's been terrific. We have support at the board level of all of the institutions we've been talking about to really make this uh, thrive. 
we're discussing now a different level of commitment. And, and what we have figured out is that Atlanta is a great place to do this kind of research and to really develop the technologies, the drugs, the, the uh, interventions, the preventive uh, therapies to kind of uh, really help child health. And we've, we've learned this from ourselves, but we've learned this from outside consultants that things have gone quite uh, dramatically well the last five years with this kind of support. So we are, we are on the edge of you know, just deciding where, what level should we go to. We could do much more. And there are discussions right now with children's and the academic partners about what will this look like. And so we expect there may be in the future more uh, community input to this. We need the buy-in and the help of the community business leaders and, you know, all of those who sit on the boards to really make this uh, become the best place in the world to do this kind of work. Are there other programs like this in other cities that you're emulating or imitating? Well, there are, there are great pediatric research uh, institutions in a number of cities around the country. We, we think we have an advantage, though. We have partners that they don't have. We have uh, others we haven't mentioned, like CDC's here and really uh, is a collaborator at, at individual levels on many projects. We have, you know, great community institutions that help us to do well. And we have a partnership between an engineering school and a medical school and a hospital that probably no one else actually has that combination. Yeah, I think uh, we're unique in that respect. Yeah. And we all get along. And that, yeah. <laughs> not everywhere. Uh, not to say anything about Boston or New York, but they may not all get along. <laughs> Before we jump over and start talking with our other guests, I mean, clearly we've identified that you know, funding for your research is uh, absolutely necessary. Can you talk real quickly for organizations that may be doing some research or, or pediatric uh, design and innovation for you know, whatever device that or application, as you talked about earlier, how they might get involved with you if they're not already, or how somebody might get involved with you to kind of support the projects that you're working on? Yeah, I think reaching out to either someone at Children's or, or me, for example, at Georgia Tech, we can definitely help direct you to people who might be able to help you with some of your engineering needs or your clinical needs. And then in addition to that, we do work with the community uh, to figure out how to fund these types of projects as they come in. So, there's a lot of different resources out there, GRA that we mentioned before, internal funding at Georgia Tech and, and Children's. But there's also the Atlantic Pediatric Device Consortium, which looks at FDA-approved products, um, something that's going to have to be approved through the FDA. And that gives an opportunity as well. And so I don't necessarily have to be a clinician or a doctor coming to you. I can be just, you know, Joe on the street that has a great idea to save my child's life. You can. Um, yeah, you don't have to be a clinician, and we might be able to help you find the people who could help you take that forward and give you that clinician ability or the engineering ability. Talk about web. I know you have pedsresearch.org, um, and then any other online presence that folks should know about as they're trying to get more information that would be good for you all? Pediatric Connect is another website that we set up to, to talk about the funding and the different projects that we have going on at Georgia Tech. Yeah, and pedsresearch.org is one that we set up uh, back in 2007 or 2008 when we started this last uh, strategic push. And it tries to bring together the initiatives between all the institutions uh, that are focused on pediatric research. And we, we try to involve anyone from any of the area institutions who's interested in helping child health in this initiative. And that's, that was the reason behind that website. It's not, it's not limited to one institution or another. We try to put everything on it. So. Mm -hmm. We've been talking with Leanne West and Paul Spearman of, uh, from uh, Georgia Tech and the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta with Emory uh, about their collaboration between the two bringing out pediatric innovations in applications, devices, you name it. You know, again, CW and I are in media and, you know, it's like hiding under a bushel. What are you doing to get this word out? besides coming on programs like this? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, we need to do more. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we, we've talked at a lot of the, uh, the kind of board-level presentations and things, but I don't think there's been an overall um, public awareness campaign, which would be nice. I think there will probably right. be more in, in coming years. I think You're it's a great right idea. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but we have presented at, at conferences, um, technical conferences, to present what we've been doing. And we do have press releases every once in a while on a technology when it gets completed or starts being in use at children. So there is some publicity that goes out, but we could definitely do more. 
Well, thanks so much for taking some time. And, and we've been talking about innovations in pediatric technologies, and that brings us to our next guest who fought her way through some <laughs> Atlanta traffic. Atlanta traffic, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Carly Kisilisnik is CEO and founder of Brainchild Technologies, and you're working on a device that I thought was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. It allows you to begin to be a lot more interactive and communicative with infants. Exactly. And, and so let's just dive right into it and talk about uh, you know what you're working on and, and if we can we'll rewind and, and talk a little bit about, about your about your background before you got to this place sure so we're basically taking an old neuroscience tool where neuroscience want to understand what's going on in the baby's brain and since they have so limited ways to communicate or behaviors they can control scientists took what babies can control from day one and one of those is like looking behavior which is what the Marcus Autism Center is doing with eye tracking and the alternative was looking at sucking behavior, which is something most babies can do from birth. So if you measure sucking rates in an infant and kind of wire those to a computer, you can allow an infant to control the presentation of stimuli like sounds or images with their own sucking rates. So what we're trying to do is make a fun consumer version of that. Yeah. So you can have pacifier-controlled apps or other smart objects like a mobile or nightlight or something like that. So it allow interactive play for the infant, which if you have more back and forth interaction, it's pretty much a form of communication between mm -hmm. a parent and infant, but also allows more interactive play. And at the same time, you can allow that kind of tracking of those cognitive milestones or what a baby kind of understands or prefers earlier than possible before. So allowing that at home, but also can be playful as a consumer product as well. Yeah. This must be like the type A mom's perfect dream <laughs> <laughs> there's one market but we're trying to see a fun way too so it allows to track things have this think about an educational or smarter baby but at the same time it's just what parent doesn't want to know kind of what their kid is thinking and be able to have instead of just talking to your baby that never talks back a way for them to give a way to respond that's interesting uh, i you know when my daughter was a, a young infant and toddler um, they were teaching uh, sign language for them, mm -hmm. and 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 clearly they are able to demonstrate very young that they can understand. They can't speak, but they can certainly mm -hmm. understand, and then they can actually communicate with you through sign language. I think it's interesting because uh, because from what I understand, in looking at uh, the the pacifier based application or device that you have, it allows the kid to actually, as you mentioned, use their sucking patterns to turn on a turn on a nightlight to, to make a mobile go around to make a toy do something mm -hmm. um, I find that to be very interesting now w when they start doing these types of things this interactive play is it being shown that that kind of helps them move along and, and advances their rate of cognitive development in some way I guess I think with all that we still there's a lot of research that needs to be done on that but you can think the best correlate like you said was the baby's sign language and there there's giving them the tools to communicate earlier you realize they comprehend things earlier but there the research showed that actually had long-term benefits at least some evidence showed that for more language learning and education if they had the tools earlier to communicate so I think there is a big push for teaching cause and effect as one of the first educational toys, and that's kind of what we're allowing to do. But with all this, there's just so little known of kind of what helps the baby's brain growth at that age. So it's just giving people the tool to kind of track that better and then be able to understand it. And how much more could you understand and know what is beneficial for the education of a baby if you had tools to kind of observe it earlier and at home and not just isolated to labs. So we're on the radio, so and people are probably trying to picture what you're talking about. So kind of give us a visual, you know, how would you how would you describe this to someone if they could they couldn't see like what is it that you're doing and is it a platform, is it a a device, what is it? Mm -hmm. So we're starting just with basically taking a sensor inside of a pacifier, so having kind of a standalone pacifier that can look Actually, what we're looking to do is starting with taking pacifiers already out there, some of the soothing pacifiers, if you've seen those with the open back, and have something you can snap on or clip to it or strap when it's playtime, and just adds a sensor to the pacifier, and then has a wirelessly connects to different devices. And we're starting just with you know something that can connect to an iPad or other tablets, and then you can have either sounds or images on the tablets the baby could control, and then eventually expanding to kind of this Internet of Things and different hardware, so it just wirelessly connects to other devices. But starting at it, just looking at the baby has this pacifier, and maybe an iPad is nearby, and when the baby sucks, they realize suddenly a sound is, or music is emanating from somewhere nearby, or the mother's voice, 
or something pops up on the screen. So we can just start with early apps where a cute image of bubbles or something pops up and then the baby or the parent has to pop them along with the infant. So kind of back and forth play. Yeah, I'm, I'm laughing because, you know, you have your first baby and that pacifier drops on the ground and you're sterilizing it or you have to replace it. And the yeah. fourth one, you're just kind of like... Yeah, rub it yeah. off if you do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. just put it back in yeah. there. There's a five-second rule there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's by the fourth one, it's yeah. like 45 minutes. It doesn't yeah, matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. First-time parent versus second-time parent. Yeah. Slightly different. Exactly. Yeah. So talk about the genesis of this. How did you get to this place? So um, it was with my co-founders. One was another graduate student um, in neuroscience when I was studying, and her husband as well. And we were good friends from grad school, and they were expecting their first child. So of course, we as neuroscientists had all these questions about what was going on in a baby's brain. And we were joking. I knew about this old technique when I start, first studied um, kind of human development and psychology. And we were just like, we would love to have an at-home version of that pacifier technique. And kind of joking, we could call it the eye suck or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still debating on that name. but um, I'd suggest a different name. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> some people I, like it, some don't. I like it. <laughs> we're of course I would. We're 50-50 on that. Um, we'll stick with brainchild for now. But um, So we were thinking just how much fun that would be to have at home. And then we realized not just as a neuroscience tool, but basically just allowing more interactive play and communication has broader appeal and so we'd been thinking about this for a little while and kind of trying to develop it on our own. And then right at the end of my postdoc at Yale, um, I saw this opportunity with NeuroLaunch, this accelerator down in Atlanta, to kind of help accelerate neuroscience-focused businesses. So it was a perfect opportunity for us to finally dive in full time. So we obtained some seed funding from that, started up in November. I moved down here, and we just got some intensive mentorship and um, time to kind of delve into this and evaluate it as a business idea. So where are you in the process uh, with development and rolling it out? Right. So that allows us to get kind of an early stage prototype that, that works to um, activate different apps and kind of do some customer discovery and do some roundtables with parents. So we had a bunch of parents come in and have the infants rolling around in the office and ask them kind of what they were needing, get some provisional patents in. And now we're looking at the next stage to develop the prototype further, so looking at resources to do that. Um, and also looking for fundraising to get the next uh, amount of funds to get our finalized design of the prototype. So talking to investors in the community and hoping to get a nicer prototype out to pilot families to really get some feedback from them and let them try it out for like a week or two. How's that going for you? Uh, it's going well. So we definitely found some great resources in the area for the prototyping and talking to people with that. And now it's just the you know typical... Uh, fundraising, talking to investors, and it's it's gaining momentum, and it just always takes time. And from what I understand, as I was reading the piece that you have, you called it the pitch deck that, that you use to introduce uh, a prospective investor to your technology, one of the uh, benefits of using this type of device is the potential to be able to more early detect autism, for example. Yeah, so that's kind of a long-term ambitious plan, is we're looking at initially starting as consumer device, but we could see this in the future um, with more development, looking as what medical device benefits could it have if it was a complement to something like the Marcus Autism Center is doing with eye tracking. But there's a lot needed to be done first for that before we could establish what is the baseline of cognitive milestones first, and then what are the variations that might be indicative of something like autism, ADHD, other developmental disorders. But we definitely are keeping an eye on the potential for those and trying to keep a close tabs of what is feasible as far as tracking cognitive milestones. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people are getting into how can you track behavioral changes indicative of neuroscience disorders with different apps, smartphones, et cetera. And here's the one time where you actually have kind of a rewarding time to track changes in cognitive ability. I mean, when else after head injury or um, dementia is it actually fun to see changes in cognitive uh, milestones or cognitive abilities. And here's one time that's the first year where you expect changes, and it's actually fun to track them. So it's a nice model to kind of see how could we track and gamify the tracking of cognitive ability and the changes in it with apps. Uh, do, uh, do, are you looking at any applications even in, you know, NICU or, or even for, you know, sick babies as well? I mean, you guys are listening, Leanne and, and Paul, listening to this. Is there any application across for what you all doing? I'm sure there is. I've been taking notes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I don't know offhand, but but it's really interesting, and I definitely want to learn more and think about it a little bit more. Uh, one of the things that your piece pointed out is how the timing is right for coming through with 
technology like this mm-hmm. because the millennial moms they're they're a tightly gener- wound yeah that <laughs> and a generation that's clearly <laughs> interwoven with technology and very much it's a part of their everyday and so having another piece of technology that you know in some ways gives them the ability to communicate more directly with their child or be even more interactive and communicative with them i would imagine they're probably going to be interested in something like this. Yeah, I wasn't that aware of this, but it sounds like it's something that could be very useful for uh, infants who have had a neurologic injury mm-hmm. and are recovering or are being trained and trying to get their, you know, their suck reflexes back and really being able to swallow again and those kinds of things might be mm-hmm. might be very useful there for the. See, rehab. we may be fostering a collaboration <laughs> yeah. right here. Yeah. Exactly, and I think there's someone else who was working on is specifically NICU babies and how to encourage the sucking reflex and, and build that with um, giving feedback on music. So there's some kind of reward to sucking on a pacifier earlier. And that's something um, that uh, so another company had been working on earlier, and I'm not sure where they are right now, but just looking at, so one, we're looking at more just not focused on the sucking reflex, but there definitely could be applications if you just want to promote that or give an extra reward on top of the pacifier use. Um, but generally it's just... Um, for preterm babies, other if you just want to make sure to encourage um, language, um, make sure active play, things like that. It's definitely a way that we see it's encouraging that. And as far as the timing being right, I think there is a lot of issues with people's views on technology and babies and a lot of struggle with in parents' minds right now and looking at they see it everywhere. They know their babies are tempted. I love the iPads, things like that, and when it's good and when it's bad. And there's been a lot of debate with parents on when screen time is good or bad for the babies. Right. And so talking to parents, you see the shift as they've heard, you know, you want to avoid this passive screen time or putting your baby down in front of a TV. But they also see how useful the iPads are. So trying to debate what is it about technology that scares some parents off? And what is the benefits? What are the potential negatives? And we're trying to see it as just this is an alternative to that passive screen time or way to encourage interactive play and that's mm-hmm. what we really stress and at the same time you see some organizations like zero to three stressing that you know it's not so much technology it's just avoid passive play time which is exactly what we're trying to do so encourage interactive play time earlier a lot of the um you know there's at least when i was a new mom and i can't imagine that that whole debate has gone away but even the use of a pacifier yeah i was thinking about that myself yeah when at what uh, i was wondering about if the transition away from the technology for the child, once they become more more able to communicate directly, does that kind of come at about the time when you would see that, you know, you're designing it so that it fits into that band when they're going to be using a pacifier? Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing this as you can start this early as soon as they start using a pacifier. But then looking at how you could actually build into it a reward for weaning them off the pacifier after about a year when they can actually interact by other means, either the touch screen or just typical language. So you're not getting a baby even more attached to the pacifier past an age that is appropriate. So we actually add an extra value of how could we tie um, some kind of activity with the apps that the pacifier no longer has as much value after a year and the kid learns to help them wean off the pacifier at that time. Okay, so you're already kind of tackling that very thing right, right. there. How do you avoid kind of the dental issues people worry about, right. things yes. like that, and yeah. just kind of actually help them wean off of it? Okay. I think when um, I had one of my, I have four boys, and so one of them was so old it was like a verbal negotiation to get rid of his pacifier. I think it was, mm-hmm. you know, he could have a big boy bed if he finally gave up his pacifier. So um, I'm probably a perfect market for you. <laughs> so, But it, if there is a problem with the pacifier, mm-hmm. are you thinking, you know, some other application or some other device that you could use? Yeah, we're debating with that and just looking at the design right now for how it could be used. Um, I don't know how much I can say about it, but looking at how much it doesn't isn't relying on the pacifier, but just taking what basic movements or action a baby can do and apply those to connected devices around them. So thinking of that kind of internet of things for the baby, but what other behaviors other than the pacifier could you help the baby um, use to tie into other devices around them? So we started with the pacifier, but we're definitely looking at how else we can expand beyond that. Yeah, because then you actually expand your market as well. Mm -hmm. I haven't looked deeply into it, but from what I understand, some of the computers now are, are using 
technology that uh, reads your gaze in some form or fashion that uh, to control things, I guess, or make some things happen, whether it's shifting the view on the on the computer. I have not looked very deeply, but I've seen it advertised. Um, or is that kind of what you're talking about? Because from what I understand, that's one of the things that we look at is where does the child's gaze go? Where do they, what are their patterns? Because that can indicate some things and, and is a part of their communication and bonding process, apparently, right. as an infant. And like others were saying, they use the eye tracking as a, a big tool in kind of what the Marcus Autism Center is doing. Um, and we're, we've looked at that, but I think it's hard, very difficult to get the baby to sit still enough or to really get a consistent read on that. Mm -hmm. So we definitely know that's an option, but we have not been focusing on that just because we don't, the technology It'll be like Google Glasses for babies. Right. <laughs> but it's hard yeah. to get them to really focus on one. And, and even head turning is something that doesn't really develop till four months. So it's just how much can you have their heads just sit still enough to get the eye tracking accurate. So for somebody who's listening and they're tr trying to get their mind around how can pacifiers as a, as a means to control, there's non-nutritive sucking mm -hmm. that, that infants do. Can you talk about that to kind of give some context to what kind of, you know, the, the baby's doing because it's not all just functional I'm trying to eat something right so um, when they say non-intuitive sucking it's just a technical term for non-feeding related so on the pacifier so again it's just um, there are some small differences with how the patterns of sucking on a pacifier versus feeding behavior so they do change a bit and obviously that'll change over time with the child so they I think the sucking behavior on the pacifier in before four months or so starts to change as the baby can control more of the behaviors on the pacifier that they'll start having more variable ways to interact with the pacifier as they grow up. Um, but basically thinking of it, it's just a behavior that an infant with few motor skills can control. And it just started when researchers noticed, I think more related to research on feeding, that a child would change their sucking rates on a pacifier when they were interested in something. So even when they don't understand cause and effect yet, it was a behavior that would change based on their mental state and what they were interested in. And then they could take advantage of that by also allowing that change in, in sucking rates from their interest to actually affect the presentation of sounds or images. So taking something the baby naturally changes and then building on that to let them control it once they learn cause and effect. Yes, I see here scientists have used non-nutritional sucking to study operant conditioning, language development, social cognition, preferences, and experience in utero. Mm -hmm. So um, the most recent study by Patricia Cool and others and Christine Moon was looking at from like, I think they took the infants at after one or two days after birth and presented them to uh, samples of uh, noises from languages in their native language or uh, a foreign language to see how much they were interested in, say, their mother's native language versus uh, vowel sounds from a different language. So from that study, uh, I think it was in 2012, they saw that babies actually had a difference in their behavior to their mother's native language than a foreign language. And so if that's a day or two after birth, how much is that is just from in utero exposure to their mother's voice? So that's a typical study that's been done with this in the past is you can do it at such an early age. You can see, like, do they recognize certain musics or sounds you've always listened to during pregnancy, things like that. So as far as um, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, as far as is this just another gimmick for mm -hmm. people that have a lot of disposable income to be able to grow babies that have yet another advantage over those babies that don't have this technology? <laughs> How do you kind of um, respond to that? Well, one, we've been debating with the pricing for quite a bit, and we are trying to keep it as a lower cost item that wouldn't be too cost prohibitive, at least for the pacifier, and then you can play with the cost of different connected devices, but at least the core pacifier and apps, something, um, I mean, obviously depending on the families, we're eyeing something around $40 or something like that. Um, but again, it's trying to see how can you start to get momentum in the market, but then have this something that's open to others. And in the future, especially if we had value as an educational or medical device, right. how could you then use it to get into programs with other families that maybe couldn't afford it at first? But that all depends. Right now, we're taking advantage of families that already have a tablet at home. But how could we expand in the future to open up to other families that don't? Yeah, because you can hear moms, new moms listening to this going, oh, ay, 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 one more thing mm -hmm. I have to do to have a super baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> to be able to get yeah. them into that preschool. Mm -hmm. But what a, what, a, what a great concept. All you do is go boop, plug yeah. it in, and then they're off. 
Yeah. And they're running. Exactly. Making things happen. So we'll throw the question to you. That's before we run out of time, uh, use these last few minutes to talk about, clearly, again, we've identified the fact that for your organization, you're in that phase. You're trying to uh, reach out to investors and make some relationships there that will fund your your staff growth, for example, and, and development of your prototype. But anything else that you could, could benefit from adding to what you're doing? We always want feedback from parents, especially ones who have infants now or recently did, and hear what um, they're looking for and uh, eventually looking for pilot families that would want to try it out. So definitely parents in the areas, those that know others that are interested in this and and come and talk to us, um, they can check out our website or Facebook. And we're trying to also get feedback on the interest in neuroscience from parents and kind of build a community on baby brain science and understanding the milestones going on. So gauging interest in that from parents and then also just facilities and help with the prototyping, um, 3D printing and electrical engineering, things like that. So Brainchild Tech, T-E-C-H, brainchildtech.org is mm-hmm. the website so they can get some information there. Mm-hmm. How are you How are you reaching out to the, the parents who are getting their children involved with you in the process yeah, are, you, are you is it friends them? and family recruitment right now started friends and family my co-founders they're actually over in denmark but they're they're also new parents so they have a very tight-knit community over there they may be able to take advantage of and here we got connected with a mommy blogger who's also a neurologist in the area and she connected us with her group I and see. she has access to about 200 or so new mothers and helped us set up interviews surveys roundtables with parents coming in and just um we can have a conversation with them of what they're looking for and if this would fit their needs. So if you're a parent in the area and you want to participate in some of your research or development kinds of processes, mm-hmm. all they got to do is reach out through the website or your social media? Website would be great. There's also a Facebook page at Brainchild Tech as well. So the website's probably the best bet. Um, and there, there's um, surveys and information on how to get in contact with us. So it's just info at brainchildtech.org. Final thoughts from everybody before we have to go? I was going to say that, boy, reaching out to a mommy blogger who's also a neuroscientist was smart, but then I realized you're a neuroscientist too. So You know, people run with, with uh, you know, birds of a feather, right? Yeah. But very interesting, especially on the technology and using something that pretty much almost every household has, especially Usually, if they have a new yeah, baby. they're everywhere. Try to keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. that's great. Leanne, Paul, anything uh, before we have to jump off today before we go? I, I just want to thank you for having us. I think... Um, you know, we're really excited about overall pediatric research in Atlanta. We want you to know about it. We want to try to um, really build it, continue to build it, and continue to build these partnerships. And I think a lot of good, both for child health and and for some economic benefit, will come out of this. To all of our guests, Leanne West, Paul Spearman, and Carly Kislisnik, and Diana Keo of Sherwick Media Group, for whom... We are grateful for making this show possible. And to all the folks out there that are making us a part of your day again today, make sure that you share this information because clearly that's what we're all about is to try to introduce folks in the community that uh, might just lead uh, organizations like these to that piece that they need to make it all fall together. So uh, please turn around and share this and uh, help us get the word out. We uh, thank you for making time to listen to us today. Thanks for joining us here in the studio today. I'm glad I was here. This is a great show. It was cool having, uh, having you here in the studio today. We didn't think we're going to have you. Make sure you make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.